Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 16, Ezra chapters 8 and 9. For rightly dividing God's holy scriptures, context is the key. Context. Without proper context, we follow rabbit trails to nowhere. Or worse, we establish dubious doctrines based on misunderstanding, unaware of what we've done. So we're going to spend a little time this morning adding more background to our study of Ezra to try to gain as much as possible from this wonderful book that speaks so forcefully about today as it does times past. Now we left off in this historical book of Ezra about halfway through chapter 8 as Ezra was organizing a caravan of about 5,000 men, women, and children for a one-way journey from Persia to Judah. The year is 458 B.C. It's the seventh year of King Artaxerxes' reign over the vast media Persian Empire. The king has graciously given the great Torah teacher Ezra authority and funding for the trip, encouraging him to establish the Torah law among his people in order to reform their religion and worship practices wherever they might reside in the beyond the river satrapy. Two things shouldn't be missed. First, how the Torah, which was essentially the Bible in that era, had become separated and forgotten within the religion that the exiled Jews practiced. And second, how supportive the kings of Persia have been towards the Jewish people, as well as encouraging their aspirations to repopulate their homeland, to rebuild their temple, to reestablish their unique culture. Look, this could be nothing else but the invisible hand of Jehovah operating within the minds of these Gentile kings that would cause them to behave in such an unexpected way. The rallying point for these many Jewish families to meet up and make final preparations was at a place our narrative calls the Ahava Ahava River. Either a small tributary or more likely a man-made canal attached to the Euphrates River. And then from there, Ezra would lead this group on a high-risk trek of about a thousand miles. It would take four and a half months. Now anytime there's an occasion like this one, where a significant number of people pull up stakes and migrate in mass, leaving behind a settled life and established ties, it's good to ask why they might do that. Too much as we read the Bible, we get so caught up in the enormity of the event, usually told with frustratingly little detail, we lose connection and empathy with the actual people involved. In modern times, moving even 10 miles causes disruption in our lives. Moving a long way to another country 
Well, that means big changes and not just a little bit of anxiety. So we usually don't do it lightly. And while the issue of the motivation for these 15 Jewish families spearheading this migration to Judah isn't addressed, the circumstances make it self-evident that it could have been nothing less than an unction of the Spirit of God upon them, which, for most, resulted in a zealousness to obey the Lord by returning to the promised land He'd set apart for them through the Abrahamic covenant. Now, of the 15 families listed in chapter 8, the two priestly families no doubt had the greatest enthusiasm because they would finally be able to utilize their God-ordained heritage and vocation at the newly built temple in Jerusalem. I mean, for several generations, essentially since Solomon's temple had been reduced to a heap, in 586 BC by the invading army of Nebuchadnezzar, the priesthood was essentially defunct. It had no purpose. The loss of their status and their power and their position among the people would have been terribly discouraging. And no doubt, many gave it up forever as they dealt with the realities of 70 years of exile in Babylon and the everyday matters of simply supporting their families. Yet this group of priests that volunteered to accompany Ezra had retained or perhaps regained their desire to rediscover their vocations even though none had ever seen, let alone served, at the temple. All of them had been born in exile. The royal descendants of King David represented by Hattush's family that joined with Ezra leaves us wondering why they would go. I've offered several suggestions the last time that we met and I won't review it, but no doubt there was something in it for Hattush and his family or they wouldn't have gone. The political circumstances at that time were such that the Persian Empire was powerful, it was enlightened, fair and decent with its many races and peoples, and the government generally allowed freedom of travel and residence, and each person could worship his or her own gods as they saw fit. But it also meant that a member of the royal line of David, well, they had no thought that he could merely show up in Judah and be installed as be installed as its Jewish king, that job was taken. And there would be only one king in the Persian Empire, and that was King Artaxerxes. However, one thing was at play that might be a game changer. Egypt. Egypt, which was located on Judah's southern border. Egypt was in rebellion against Artaxerxes and perhaps Hattush hoped that there might be an opportunity to secretly ally with Egypt in exchange for Egypt helping Judah to break away from Persia. Now part of the bargain of course would have been that Hattush would have demanded to be the king of Judah. Further, there is no doubt that one of the main reasons that Artaxerxes was so inclined 
to be gracious to, to Ezra and encouraging of the Jews to repopulate Judah was to strengthen that province so it would act as a loyal blockade against the Egyptian army marching towards the north via either the coastal highway or the inland road to invade southern parts of the Persian Empire. Judah was perfectly strategically located. It was a buffer to protect the southern flank of the Persian Empire from Egypt. And I think that some other passages in this chapter and the next one, and in Nehemiah, and in some extra-biblical Persian records, bear out my speculation on this matter. But what of the twelve ordinary, common, Jewish families who had volunteered to go? What might have been their motivation? Now, 80 years had passed since Zerubbabel had led that first wave of Jews back to Judah, and if any family had an overriding concern of recovering their hereditary land rights from squatters who'd moved in after the Jews were exiled, they would have accompanied Zerubbabel back to Judah many years earlier. Waiting until now, still hoping to gain back their land, that was highly improbable. Way too much water had passed under that bridge. Thus, once again, the only reason that fits as the motivation for their return is a spiritually driven zealousness. To be obedient to God, whatever the personal cost. No doubt Ezra, so passionate to teach the Torah of God to his people in order to restore the true biblical religion to the Jewish people, he was the catalyst behind their desires. And like so many of you who are listening to my voice, you have opened your heart to God's calling to rediscover your true faith roots. And there is no other place to learn it than to begin with His Torah. And yet the road to change and reform, it's not so easy. Not so easy. It has and will continue to require much perseverance and and dedication on your part. Now my hope is that our study of Ezra will prove an encouragement to you. And it will be a validation that while the Lord, following the Lord in truth and light is not easy, the rewards far surpass the barriers. As our Messiah so eloquently said in Matthew 7, go in through the narrow gate. For the gate that leads to destruction, it's wide. The road is broad. Many travel it. But it's a narrow gate. It's a hard road that leads to life. Only a few find it. Let's read from Ezra 8.21 to the end of the chapter. Ezra 8. 21. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it begins at the bottom of page 1127. Page 1127, starting at Ezra 8, verse 21. Then, there at the Ava River, I proclaimed a fast. 
so that we could humble ourselves before our God and ask for a safe journey of Him for ourselves, our little ones, and all of our possessions. For I would have been ashamed to ask the king for a detachment of soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies along the road, since we had said to the king, The hand of our God is on all who seek Him for good, but His power and fury is against all who abandon Him. So we fasted and we asked God for this and He answered our prayer. And then I separated twelve of the chief Kohanim, chief priests, along with Shervyah and Hashviah and ten of their kinsmen. And I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the utensils for the house of our God contributed by the king, his counselors, his princes, and all Israel present there. I weighed out and handed over to them twenty-one and a half tons of silver. Three and a third tons of silver articles, three and a third tons of gold, 20 gold bowls weighing 21 pounds and two vessels of fine burnished bronze as precious as gold. Then I told them, you are consecrated to Adonai, the articles are holy, and the silver and gold are a voluntary offering for Adonai, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them before the chief priest and Levites and the leaders of the father's clans in Jerusalem in the rooms of the house of Adonai. So the priests and the Levites received the consignment of silver and gold and the articles to bring to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Well, on the twelfth day of the first month, we left the Ava River to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and surprise attacks along the road. In time, we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested for three days. On the fourth day, the silver, gold, and articles were weighed in the house of our God and handed over to Memremot, the son of Uriah, the Kohen, with him was Eleazar, the son of Pinchas, and with them were Yozavad, the son of Yeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binui, who were Levites. The entire consignment was numbered and weighed, and at the same time, the total weight was recorded. The exiles who had returned from captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 young bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering for Adonai. They also delivered the king's orders to the king's viceroys and governors beyond the Euphrates River, and these gave their support to the people and to the house of God. As we discussed last time, Ezra proclaimed a fast accompanied with a prayerful petition to Jehovah to grant the group safe passage to Judah. And one of the reasons that Ezra did this is because he pushed all his chips into the center of the table when even though the king had offered a military escort, Ezra refused it. His reason? What does it demonstrate? To preach to the people about having God's hand of blessing upon those who love Him, only to turn right around and depend upon swords and spears wielded by Gentiles to guarantee their safe arrival to God's holy city in Jerusalem. This is far more than putting your money where your mouth is, this is putting your life on the line. For your belief that the Lord is able to protect His people and an acknowledgement of the distinction that the Lord says He makes between those who love Him 
and those who forsake him. Ezra was highly connected in the Persian royal court. Smart, aware. He was anything but naive. And so he knew of these imminent hazards that awaited him on this long journey. See, his was not stubborn idealism. It was well-founded trust. Idealism is based on human philosophies. Trust is based on faith and the power of our Lord. And by doing this, Ezra unequivocally established that this migration was in fact a religious mission with a purpose higher than themselves. Now this brings us back to why it is that Ezra insisted on a high priest family, a common priest family, a number of Levites, and 12 regular Jewish families as the makeup for this group of migrants. It was his intent to symbolically relive the Exodus wilderness journey. Partially it was, I think, to make a point to the group of the important and holy nature of this endeavor. But he also believed that indeed this was an actual second exodus. It was a journey of God's people from a foreign land of captivity, although that captivity under Babylon had ended 80 years earlier, to the land promised to Abraham so long ago. It was also an establishment of God's laws and commandments for the people. Moses had received the Torah from God in a foreign place, the Sinai of Egypt. And in a sense, so did Ezra up in Babylon. For Moses, the Torah had never before existed. For Ezra, it might as well have not existed because it had been relegated to the dustbin, replaced by customs and traditions of earliest Judaism. Moses was the supreme Torah teacher and the leader of the original Exodus. Ezra is now the supreme Torah teacher and leader of this Exodus. See, that is the context for how he and how we need to understand this particular return to Judah. Anything else in the point is missed. Next, beginning in verse 24, is the practical matter of safeguarding the significant quantities of gold and silver that were donated by the king and his court and also by others. And part of the reason for the safeguarding was so it would be properly accounted for. Nothing should go missing. And because Ezra saw this as Exodus part 2, he then turned to the Torah for guidance on just how to safeguard and transport these valuables that were intended for use by the temple. And essentially, the how boiled down to who. Thus we read that he selected 12 priests. Then two more fellows, plus 10 of their kinsmen. The two fellows, Sherevyah and Hashavyah, were Levites. So, their kinsmen were Levites. 
So, the leaders who were in charge of the gold and silver items were 12 priests and 12 Levites. Here we see the symbolic number 12 at work again. And from the book of Numbers 3 and 4, it's clear that the Levites supervised by the priests are to be the only authorized transporters and caretakers of temple furnishings. And for certain, this is what Ezra was endeavoring to follow. Ezra intended on being scrupulous about the accounting of the gold and silver, so the items were carefully weighed, recorded, and then packed. However, the amounts... (laughs) that we find in our modern Bibles have to be a little suspect. The idea that they had in their possession and they were about to transport 43,000 pounds of silver, another 7,000 pounds of gold, and a total weight of all these items were 25 tons, in addition to other items that would have necessarily have they had to brought with them like food, water, precious personal items, etc. It strains credulity. Naturally, the original language doesn't use terms like pounds or tons. These are extrapolations made by modern editors to try and ascertain what the Hebrew terms for weight might mean in modern weights and measures. The Hebrew term used is kikar. And it is often translated to talent. But then talent is sometimes retranslated to pounds and to tons. So just for fun, I did a little research on how much a camel can carry. And to my surprise, a single camel can carry almost a thousand pounds for short distances. A thousand pounds. For average distances, however, a camel is usually loaded to no more than about 450 pounds, and for long distances, never over 350 pounds. The camels on Ezra's journey would have been loaded the lightest because they were going to be traveling for a thousand miles. Thus, it would have taken 150 camels just for the gold and silver items. And of course, there was more in addition that would have been that would have had need for transport. This is certainly not an impossible number of camels, but it's very large. And it exceeds almost anything known as a maximum size for a camel caravan. Bottom line, almost certainly there wasn't 25 tons of gold and silver, but no doubt it was a king's ransom, nonetheless. <clears throat> Sorry, I had a little trouble with allergies. Join the crowd, huh? Well, then in verse 28, the Torah scholar reminds the priests and the Levites that these items are holy. The items are holy. And according to the law, he's correct. The principle of dedicating anything to the Lord, pay attention to this, is that once it's given, it becomes holy property. 
Anything that is God's property is holy. The moment even the decision is made to consecrate something to God from the Lord's eyes, the transfer has just occurred whether the item has been presented yet or not. So the instant that the king and his court offered these items to Ezra for the temple, the gold and silver items became God's property. So they were holified. Therefore, from this moment forward, technically... They should be handled only by priests and Levites and they have to be carried in a prescribed manner. But it also means that for any item to be lost or borrowed or stolen would be a direct defense against God's holy property and the penalty for this can be death. No wonder such care was taken. Now the procedure was that upon arrival in Jerusalem, the gold and the silver items designated for the temple would be turned over to the currently presiding high priest, priests, and Levites. They would then carefully weigh and count the items, check them against the accounting records made here by the Ava River to be sure there's no discrepancies. And verse 31 explains that the caravan began its trek to Jerusalem on the 12th day of the first month. And since Ezra had left the city of Babel on the first day of the first month, then we see that it took him a total of nine days to get from Babel to the Ava River where he then camped for three more days. And sure enough, Ezra's faith in God was rewarded. The caravan was not attacked. And with no military escort, the entire caravan laden with treasure arrived safely in Jerusalem. On the fourth day after the... After their arrival, the gold and the silver were turned over to the temple authorities who counted and weighed and the totals matched. It's not surprising that Ezra's exiles were anxious to present their sacrifices and burnt offerings at the temple. Something none of them had ever had the privilege of doing. And again, we find the use of the symbolic number 12 is involved in the amount of sacrifices that were offered. 12 bulls, 96 rams, 12 times 8, 12 male goats. We also see the symbolic use of the ideal divine number 7, as the number of lambs offered is 77. This chapter ends with Ezra delivering the king's written orders concerning the authority he had given to Ezra to various government officials in Judah and the beyond the river satrapy. The upshot was that the king made it clear that these officials were to give Ezra, the Jewish people in general, and the temple their full support. They complied. Let's move on to chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. We're just going to read the first four verses. First four verses. 
page 1128 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the Kohanim and the Levaim, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands and their disgusting practices. The Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of the women from these nations as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed has assimilated to the peoples of the lands. Moreover, the officials and leaders have been the main offenders in this treachery. When I heard this, I tore my robe and my tunic, I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat down in shock. All who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled around me. When we confronted, when confronted with the treachery, treachery of these exiles, and I sat there in shock until the evening offering. If we were to give a title to Ezra chapters 9 and 10, it would probably be Ezra's Crusade Against Unauthorized Marriages. Now I can't begin to tell you the heartburn that these two chapters have caused many within traditional institutional Christianity and especially so in modern times. And the reason is that many Gentile Christian scholars say there is no more blatantly racist section of the Bible than here. The solutions have ranged from apologies for God's actions to a belief that Ezra didn't act according to God's principles, but rather he made mistakes, to an accusation that the text is highly corrupted, but the most adopted solution is to just express relief that since mainstream Christianity has long ago thrown out the Old Testament anyway, why worry about it? This just provides one more good justification according to them as to why modern believers shouldn't even look at the Old Testament at all. Now the irony is that if these same Christian scholars and leaders knew much about the Old Testament and the Hebrew culture and about the Torah, their heartburn would never have occurred. Before we take this matter on, however, it's best we take a brief detour. Around this same era as Ezra and Nehemiah lived a prophet named Malachi. Now very little is known about him. And he may not have actually appeared until maybe 20 years after Ezra first arrived back in Jerusalem, but it could have been around the same time. It's just very difficult to pinpoint. Nonetheless, Malachi lived in essentially the same era. So he had much to say about the goings-on around the temple and about the spiritual condition of the priests and the Levites and the laypersons of Judah. Therefore, we would be remiss not to look at least part of what Malachi has to say about the pertinent circumstances of that day. Now, something that we should realize before we read Malachi is that especially Christianity sees the law of Moses or the Torah and the prophets as two very distinct 
entities. But in fact, they were and they remain closely associated. Now, if you can give me your attention, I think this will help you tremendously in understanding the Bible. More often than not, the prophets were reminding the people of their unfaithfulness and of the sins based on the lack of their obedience to the law of Moses. Even though technically it was the priest's job to teach the Torah and the law to all Israel, it was the prophet's job to bring God's oracle of warning to the people when they weren't obeying it. And those consequences, often catastrophic, were just around the corner unless God's people repented and their actions changed drastically. Now, interestingly, prophets didn't usually quote scripture, although they did sometimes. Instead, they tended to speak of God's principles that were being violated. They spoke in terms of the intended spirit of the law, as opposed to the letter of the law. And this is much the same as Christ did around five centuries later. So in Matthew 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, when Yeshua refers to the law and the prophets, it's because for him the law and the prophets are organically connected. The law of Moses, you see, sets up the God-given statutory rules and commandments for the worshippers of the God of Israel. In other words, it sets up the legal system. The prophets instruct the people by means of oracles from God on the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law, you see, that was the core message of Messiah's sermon that day before huge crowds on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The spirit of the law. So, let's read a section of Malachi remembering he is delivering God's message. On what? The spirit of the law to folks in Judah around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Malachi. We're going to be reading the second chapter, so you'll find that on page 786 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Malachi chapter 2. We're going to read it all. Now priests, this commandment is for you. And if you won't listen, if you won't pay attention to honoring my name, says Adonai Zavod, then I'll send a curse on you. I will turn your blessings into curses. Yes, I'll curse them, because you pay no attention. I will reject your seed. I'll throw dung in your faces. The dung from your festival offerings. And you will be carted off with it. Then you will know that I sent you this command to affirm my covenant with Levi, says Adonai Zevaot. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave him these things. It was also one of fear, and he feared me. He was in awe of my name. The truth, the true Torah was in his mouth. 
No dishonesty was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned away from sin. A priest's lips should safeguard knowledge. The people should seek Torah from his mouth because he is the messenger of Adonai Zevaot. But you turned away from the path. You caused many to fail in the Torah. You corrupted the covenant of Levi, says Adonai Zevaot. Therefore, I have in turn made you contemptible and vile before all the people because you did not keep my ways but we're partial in applying the Torah. Don't we all have the same Father? Didn't one God create us all? Then why do we break faith with each other, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has broken faith. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Adonai, which he loves, by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. If a man does this and presents an offering to Adonai Zevaot, may Adonai cut him off from the tents of Jacob, whether initiator or follower. Here's something else you do. You cover Adonai's altar with tears, weeping and with sighing, because he no longer looks at the offering or receives your gifts with favor. Nevertheless, you ask, why is this? Because Adonai is witness between you and the wife of your youth that you've broken faith with her. Though she is your companion, your wife by covenant, And hasn't He made them one flesh in order to have spiritual blood relatives? For what the one flesh seeks is a seed from God. Therefore take heed to your spirit. Don't break faith with the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says Adonai, the God of Israel. And him who covers his clothing with violence, says Adonai Zevaot. Therefore take heed to your spirit. Don't break faith. You have wearied Adonai with your words. Yet you ask, well, how have we been wearying him? By saying that anyone who does wrong is good from Adonai's perspective. And that he's delighted with them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? I must tell you, if a recognized prophet of God today in 2014 and I know of none by the way were to stand up and say these words to adherence of Judaism and of Christianity the subject matter would be as appropriate and timely as when it was originally spoken to the Jewish people in Judah 2500 years ago substitute the office of rabbis and pastors for Levitical priests mentioned in Malachi and the inference can't be any stronger. Notice how the Lord through Malachi essentially indicts the priests, the leaders and the teachers of God's people for not honoring God's name. And the main way they are not honoring God's name is They're not teaching people the true Torah. Verse 6. 
The priests were assigned to safeguard knowledge of God's Torah and the people should seek to hear the Torah from priests' lips because the priests are messengers similar to prophets from the Lord. But according to Malachi, what did the priests do instead? Starting in verse 8, God says, You turned away from the path and you caused many to fail in the Torah and you corrupted the covenant of Levi. Now we know what the Torah is, but what's the covenant of Levi? Is this a new or older covenant we've never heard discussed before? No, it's just a way of giving a name to the body of Torah law that concerns the separation of the tribe of Levi away from Israel and that gives them their special holy status as God's servants. Listen to Numbers 3, 5-13. through 13. Adonai said to Moshe, Summon the tribe of Levi and assign them to Aaron the Kohen so that they can help him. They are to carry out his duties and the duties of the whole community before the tent of meeting and performing the service of the tabernacle. They are to be in charge of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and to carry out all the duties of the people of Israel connected with service of the tabernacle. Assign the Levites to Aaron and his sons. Their one responsibility in regard to the people of Israel is to serve him. You are to appoint Aaron and his sons to carry out the duties as priests. Anyone else who involves himself is to be put to death. And Adonai said to Moses, I've taken the Levites from among the people of Israel in lieu of every firstborn male that is first from the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites then are to be mine. All the firstborn males belong to me. Because on the day that I killed all the firstborn males in the land of Egypt, I separated for myself all the firstborn males in Israel, both human and animal, they're mine. I'm Adonai. The point of the oracle in Malachi is that the priests and the Levites aren't living up to a contract, essentially, between them and God made back in the days when Moses was leading them through the desert. And specifically... They're not teaching or keeping the Torah. But then later, starting in Malachi 2.11, the Lord declares that Judah as a nation of people has broken faith. Broken faith with whom? The Lord. And they have done this by Hebrews marrying foreigners. This is expressed by saying they married a daughter of a foreign god. This is not referring to a girl being the offspring of a pagan god. It means that every foreign nation had a chief god and a bunch of other gods as well. The god and the nation were seen as inseparable. So we'll find many places in the Bible that the nation of Assyria, for instance, is also called Asher. Asher was the name of the god of Assyria. So, both the name of the god and that god's nation are alternate terms for the same people in place. So the accusation is that God's sanctuary, the temple, is profaned because the males of Judah married foreign women who by definition worshipped other gods. But 
what comes next is this. Starting in verse 13, the Lord says that as a result of the Lord no longer accepting their worthless sacrifices of atonement, then the people have troubles. So they fall on His altar and they weep bitter tears and they look heavenward and they go, Why? Why, God? Why are these bad things happening to me? I'm a good person. I come to the sanctuary. I contribute. I say the prayers. See, they're oblivious to their rebellion against God and they deny it when they're told about it. And why are they oblivious? Because they don't know God's Torah. Why don't they know God's Torah? Because the priests have stopped teaching them the Torah. Instead, they teach them customs, traditions. And then the explicit issue of breaking faith in marriage is addressed. The issue that Ezra deals with in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. And what we are hearing is that apparently many men of Judah with Hebrew wives divorced them in order to marry these foreign women. I hate divorce, says the Lord. And the Lord says in verse 17, and I paraphrase it, Enough of your lip service. I'm tired of hearing your nonsense and your insincere pleadings. And what is it that the people are saying and pleading? They're saying anyone who does wrong is actually doing good in God's eyes. And that God's just delighted with them. Now, let's have the rubber hit the road. Pastors and rabbis especially, it's our job, our responsibility to teach people God's Word. And God's Word begins with and is dependent upon His Torah. If we as leaders claim that we've been called or anointed or ordained, whatever term you want to use, to be a pastor or a rabbi, to represent our Lord to His people, and we choose instead to dish out man-made doctrines and weak sayings and amusing speeches on social issues, instead of teaching the Lord's people His Word, we have broken our covenant with God. It's not just a matter of style when we choose to avoid teaching the Bible or we just make it a minor part of our sermon or maybe only we just use it as a prop. And it's not okay with God to declare that everything before the book of Matthew is irrelevant. It's not dangerous. So it ought to be avoided by believers. This is an affront to God. It causes grave damage to His people and to His ecclesia, His church. And here is what this refusal to teach His Word truthfully and adamantly eventually results in. In Malachi, God says that the people who are doing wrong insist that despite what God's Word says, a word they actually do not know because they're not taught it, the wrong they are doing is good. And more, God is just delighted with them for doing it. In other words, God's laws have been turned on its head. 
and simply don't have any true meaning. They can be avoided. And even God Himself will approve of it. Now folks, I'm sad to say that this has been a foundational doctrine of a goodly part of institutional Judaism and Christianity for hundreds of years. Today, after centuries of sliding down a hill of deception, we're getting pretty close to rock bottom. The very things that the Lord calls abominations, we say are good. We claim the Lord just delights in them. Everything from couples living together without marriage to homosexuality being supposedly normal and good, to gay marriage being lovely in God's eyes, to claiming that God is through with Israel and that we should stand up for Israel's enemies and against Israel. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. When I read this chapter in Malachi... I want to dissolve into grief and anger and bitter tears. And not surprisingly, that is precisely what we find Ezra doing to begin chapter 9. And he's doing it for all the reasons that Malachi is pointing out. Thus, the basis for Ezra not wanting the Hebrews to marry foreign women has nothing to do with racism. Race isn't the issue. It's that in this era and age, each race represented a nation, which represented a culture, which worshipped one false god or another. The issue was not not ethnicity, it wasn't skin color. The issue was polluting God's people with foreign spouses who worshipped false gods. The Old Testament is full of instances of women from foreign nations marrying Hebrew men, but at the same time giving up their false gods in favor of the one true God. And the greatest example of this must be Ruth. The moment foreigners of any race or nation give up their false gods and accept Jehovah, all biblical objection to such intermarriage is dropped. Now next week, we're going to continue with Ezra chapter 9 and see the pain that can be involved in trying to right many years of wrongs that can't be undone by ignoring it or wishing them away.